0: Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. The
1: pros that you just outlined is also very valuable in terms of conducting productive dialogue. So trying to figure out what could be wrong about your perception or where the other person might be right can help you, even if beyond just helping you see the situation more clearly, can encourage the other person to participate in a dialogue that might change minds.
2: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulda and today is another one of those episodes where we won't necessarily talk directly about biotechnology. Uh, instead, we're going to talk more about the way in which people understand information and the way in which we construct our own arguments and the way others construct their arguments, their cognitive biases, the logical fallacies that they fall into. We're talking with Itamar Schatz, and uh, Itamar is a student or was a student at Tel Aviv University. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Itamar.
1: Thank
2: you. Yeah, so Itamar is, uh, was a student at Tel Aviv University. I was just there. He's in my favorite city in the world, Tel Aviv. Um, I should mention that I'm in... My second favorite city in the world, Archer, Florida. <laughs> um, I'm uh, s- sitting outside on a beautiful summer morning, so you hear the sounds of the backyard behind me. I wanted to talk to Itamar because Itamar also curates the website Effective Eology. And it's an outstanding website with substantial traffic, and I thought he'd be a great addition to the podcast. So, could, could you tell me a little bit more about what you have studied and what you're planning on studying next year for your Ph.D.?
1: So, what I study isn't really related to what I write about. But um, so, I'm a linguistics student. What I study right now is mostly language acquisition, uh, primarily how people's native language influences them when they learn a second language. Um, so, I really love that topic, but I don't write about it that much.
2: So, the uh, how how their native language influences their ability to uh, take on a second language, or is it yeah. really a question of okay? So, or because or, I always think. I love the way that I write in English, and I could not um, possibly write if I ever was uh, to learn another foreign language. It would be like starting all over again. And and does it translate very well uh, from uh, one language to another?
1: It does. Um, there, There are all sorts of transfers from your native language to your second language, and there's also the issue of whether or not people can even acquire another language at a very high level once they're at a certain age. But what I look at is more more granular aspects of language acquisition. So, for example, uh, Russian native speakers don't have articles in their native language. Articles are things like the and a, which are words that are very common in languages such as English. And what we saw from looking at how people acquire the second language is that when people don't have a certain structure in their native language, they, they struggle in acquiring it in their second language.
2: Okay, that's 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 pretty interesting stuff. So you'll get to study the same thing going forward or something a little different?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to focus on, language, on uh, vocabulary acquisition and how similarities and differences between your native language and your second language in terms of vocabulary affect the way you learn your vocabulary.
2: And so when you look at uh, your website, so Effective Eology, which I, I think is an amazingly awesome website that I learn something from every time I go there, uh, how did you really get started on that particular topic?
1: So originally, I was writing, I was looking at uh, language acquisition stuff, and I saw that there is tons of research on the topic that pretty much no one was doing anything with. So researchers were examining all sorts of things about how we can improve language acquisition, and they were doing amazing studies with tons of participants, and all that research was going into academic journals, and then nothing was happening with it. So I wanted, I initially wanted to write about that and then I saw that this isn't just an issue that's limited to linguistics, but it's something that's much more widespread and there's tons of psychology research on tons of topics, for example, cognitive biases that is very applicable to people and that nobody is doing anything with because people just don't know about it because uh, a research article that's paywalled and written in academic jargon isn't something that the average person can understand or use. So I decided I want to write about that and basically just snowballed from there.
2: And I think it's really important because I, I learned about this stuff back when I would uh, take classes in argument or study debate. Really, these are the, the core of how we have useful discussions. And uh, by understanding the fallacies and by uh, and by really being our own best judges in terms of our self-deceptions with, with our biases – But what are some of the um, ways in which you think this kind of information can be especially important for scientists?
1: I think as scientists, we're used to basically focusing on the data that we have. So in our minds, if we have the right data, we just show it to people and they accept it because you know it's data, so you can't argue with it. That's the empirical proof. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's much, much more complicated than that. You can show people as much data as you want, as you want. And if they don't like it, they might just say, I don't agree with it. I think it's something that's especially becoming more common now with the idea of just dismissing things by saying, it's fake news. And here, I think that understanding how we can learn to communicate better and how we can account for various biases that cause people to dismiss this information in the first place to help scientists communicate better with lay people and with policymakers who don't necessarily have the same technical background as they do.
2: That's very true, and I, I agree with that very much. So let's break this down a little bit. What, is, um, what are you talking about when you're talking about cognitive bias? All
1: right, so cognitive biases, in their simplest form, is essentially are essentially systematic errors in the way we process information. Now, there used to be this idea that human beings are homo economicus and we process information in a perfect way and make perfectly rational decisions. And I think all of us intuitively know that this isn't true. And what neuro-research, especially by uh, Kahneman and Tversky, found is that we make systematic errors in how we process information. So a really neat example that they often use in order to demonstrate this is the bad and Default question, which is a nice little brain teaser. And they went to students at Princeton and asked them, A bat and a ball cost together uh, $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does each of them cost? And most people intuitively say the the bat costs $1 and the ball costs $0.10. And that's wrong, obviously, since the bat costs $1 more. So it costs uh, $1.05, while the ball costs only $0.05. And these were Princeton University students who were falling for this pretty simple brain teaser. And the idea here is that we essentially have two different cognitive systems. We have system 1, which is responsible for intuitive and automatic processing, and we have system 2, which is responsible for conscious reasoning. And in this example, what happens is that people rely on system 1 in order to form this intuitive answer, you know, it's it costs 1 dollar and 10 cents together. So one of them will cost 1 dollar and the other one will cost 10 cents. And this is, it makes sense to make that mistake. And the problem is when people don't use their System 2 in order to monitor uh, System 1 and realize that they made a mistake, they end up sticking with this answer in the long term. And essentially this is one of the ways in which we make repetitive errors. And this can extend to tons of other things. Um, I wrote about something called the spotlight effect a short while ago, which is somewhere where we assume that other people are more fixated on our actions than they actually are. This happens because we're so used to seeing things from our perspective that even though we know that they're not as fixated not as we are, we still assume that they see us from the same perspective that we do. And essentially all of these tiny little uh, intuitive errors or even errors in reasoning are things that affect the way we cross information. And help us to make decisions in an irrational way.
2: And let's drill down on that a little bit, especially with respect to system one and system two, because I know when I really dug into Kahneman's work, it really helped me to understand how to talk to people because of these different ways of processing information that I'm a system two guy. I live in system two. (laughs) And in uh, system one, uh, so system two is uh, think of this as being up in your head, right? You're, you're thinking through information, maybe overthinking information, uh, really uh, uh, synthesizing and rationalizing. Whereas uh, that little reptile part of your brain that makes really kind of uh, spur of the moment decisions, um, I tend to ignore that guy because it makes mistakes a lot. <laughs> um, but, uh, but this is what's very interesting because especially when we get into discussions about food and farming, so much of the negative rhetoric comes from system one. It's appeals to fear. It ap- appeals to uh, emotion. Whereas as a scientist, I'm going, well, that's not the way it happens. Let me tell you how it works. Let me give you the evidence. And that, that, that never really changes people.
1: Exactly, because they already made a decision based on System 1, so trying to appeal to the System 2 is meaningless. You already heard that GMO is unnatural. Of course, it's very difficult to define what unnatural means in this context. But once someone appealed to their System 1, they've already made a decision, and then they might try to rationalize it with System 2. But the decision was already made, so any evidence that, additional evidence that you present isn't going to make a difference.
2: And, and that's what's so interesting, is that as a scientist... I try to use system two to install the primary thought. So I'm using rational uh, thinking and logic and evidence to begin the process of teaching somebody, but it's not going to change what system one is already ingrained. And it's a really interesting thing for us when we discuss, even with our relationships at home, how do we um, better understand that relationship and, it's a really, and the other thing I think is really cool, too, maybe you could speak to is, I think it's really important, and it was a really turning point for, for me, a real turning point for me, when I realized that I, too, have cognitive biases.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, we like to think that we're different, and some people might be more predisposed to cognitive biases. But at the end of the day, everyone has cognitive biases. Uh, Trained psychologists have cognitive biases. Animals have cognitive biases. Um, It's something that all of us experience. It's essentially a universal side effect of how our cognitive systems work, even if we like to think of ourselves as very rational people.
2: And does recognizing that you have biases make you a little more effective in a conversation or in a debate because you really go in saying, you know, here's my experiences. Here's my training. Here are here's what I know, and I really could be wrong. So, you know, I, I, these are my biases that I have. So, so help me understand why I'm wrong. Is is that maybe a better way to be framing our arguments? Um,
1: I think it is for two reasons. One is the obvious psychological one. I think it can help with the biases in some cases. Uh, there are cognitive biases. We're being aware of them. It's, basically the main thing when it comes to debiasing. And there are a lot of cognitive biases where you obviously need to be aware of them so you can try and uh, mitigate them in some way, but just being aware of them isn't enough. But I think the approach that you just outlined is also very valuable in terms of conducting productive dialogue. So trying to figure out what could be wrong about your perception or where the other person might be right can help you even if beyond just helping you see the situation more clearly, you can encourage the other person to participate in a dialogue that might change minds. mind.
2: Yeah. And what about the concept of logical fallacy? I know that this was something that I, I really like on your website because you describe well how they work. And I've never was good at the game where somebody does a logical fallacy and then asks me to explain what it is. Mm-hmm. So what, what, is, um, what is a logical fallacy?
1: So a logical fallacy... The simplest way to explain it is just an error in reasoning. Now, obviously, it sounds a bit like a cognitive bias, but the idea is that cognitive bias occurs at a lower level of processing or thinking. So, a cognitive bias essentially affects us in terms of how we think, and a logical fallacy affects us in terms of how we explain something. So, in a lot of cases, we can have a cognitive bias that promotes logical fallacy. A common example is the appeal to nature, which is logical fallacy, where we assume that. Something is good because it's un—it's natural or bad because it's unnatural. So this is a logical fallacy where obviously, like we said earlier, we can have this sort of uh, area in our reptile brain or sort of cognitive bias that causes us to prefer things that we perceive as natural. But on the other hand, someone might be completely disingenuous and not believe that a certain thing is more natural or more unnatural and still use an appeal to nature argument because it's an error in terms of how they... Discuss something rather than in terms of how they think.
2: Another really common one that I think explains what a logical fallacy is very well is the ad hominem um, argument uh, ad hominem, and that is when we have a speaker who makes the argument that their point of view is correct because the other person is who they are. <laughs> so it's not that it's not that their argument is bad. It's kind of the blame the messenger. Um, blame the messenger argument. It's not that the other person is uh, wrong in terms of what they're saying. It's wrong because they are who they are. Um, In other words, I don't believe a word he says because he's paid off by big ag. That's the one we hear all the time. And it doesn't matter if your information is 100% correct. What it means is that uh, they are going to dismiss everything and say you lost the argument because they feel there was some other external influence as to why you even would initiate that argument.
1: Yeah, um, that's again some, one of the most common logical fallacies or rhetorical techniques that we see a lot of, especially I think uh, last few years. And there are a lot of types of ad hominem attacks people use. So, like you said, the most common one is saying, yeah, he's paid by XYZ, so we shouldn't listen to anything he says. Um, There are all sorts of different ones. I think we've seen cases where someone is just abusing the other person, just attacking them, personal attacks that aren't even related to the discussion. Um, There are ad hominem attacks where people say, if you don't like the current situation, then you're welcome to leave. But again, it's something that plays a role very often when essentially people attack the messenger, without even explaining why the attack is relevant, which I feel is an important distinction to make because the source of an argument is important. So if someone is in fact paid by, let's say, uh, pharma companies, you should look at the motivation and see whether or not they have a conflict of interest, which might affect what they say. And we have this, again, in academic journal where people have to disclose the conflict of interest that they have. Something like this turns into an ad hominem attack when people just say, uh, you're paid by whatever company, so we should ignore everything you say, even though we haven't proven that you actually have a conflict of interest, and that's pretty much it. And this is where it really turns into logical fallacy.
2: And do you really think that if everybody in the public was better schooled in understanding what logical fallacy is and cognitive bias, that it might radically transform our political landscape?
1: I think in an ideal utopia where everyone is trained to recognize logical fallacies and conduct proper discourse, yes, I think the political landscape would look very different. Is this a realistic goal or something that we can accomplish? I'm not so sure, but I do think it's something we should strive to accomplish. Um, I think it's also something that I like about the American system of education, where you have a more liberal education where you take a lot of courses. So even if you're, for example, a biology major or a linguistic major, You're going to take classes in other things that might help you train, like you said, uh, critical thinking. Whereas in other countries, for example, we just, you know, I studied biology and linguistics, so that's the class I took. I didn't have any philosophy courses, I didn't have any writing courses, and critical thinking courses. And I think education is pretty much the only way we can strive to reach that.
2: Well, there's a uh, the the old medieval way of training people in school. I I almost like it a little better. I don't know if you know the trivium. does this ring up? A- no. Okay, so the trivium was the way in which uh, students used to be trained. And you would start out by learning uh, rhetoric and logic. And okay. then and as you began to progress forward in school, once you've mastered the, the foundation, you would begin to um, then start to learn geology and physics and biology. The, the, the initial one was uh, logic, rhetoric, and arithmetic. That was kind of like putting the tools in your toolbox, and then now once you had logic rhetoric and uh, and arithmetic, you kind of were primed to take on any of the more specialized areas because you fulfilled this core toolbox of, of, of the things that you need to synthesize biology and higher mathematics and uh, linguists. That
1: actually sounds...
2: Great. Yeah, I, I would like to see us return to that. I, I think that there's something to be said about, uh, let's talk about how we argue first before we start arguing. <laughs> 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 but. Uh,
1: Wishful thinking.
2: Yeah, I, I I do a lot of that. Uh, so th- this is the Talking Biotech podcast today, talking philosophy and rhetoric. Um, we're we're speaking with Eda marsh Eda from Tel Aviv University, and we'll be right back after this short break.
3: Hey everyone, this is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot.
2: And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking with Itamar Schatz. And Itamar is a student at Tel Aviv University who is in linguistics, who runs the website Effective Eology. And I really urge you to take a look at that. And Itamar and I have been discussing some of the rhetorical tools that we should be thinking about as we engage in public discussion. And uh, we've talked about cognitive bias, we talked about logical fallacies. One of the ones that I really. Uh, like is the straw man argument. And what's really nice about this, the straw man argument is that when you understand what it is, you can actually flip it and actually do um, what uh, Daniel Dennett refers to as the the steel man argument. And this, um, and maybe you could just explain this better than I could. So go ahead and what, what is a straw man argument and how can by understanding what a straw man argument is, make us more persuasive?
1: So a straw man is essentially one of the most common rhetorical techniques that we see where someone attempts to change someone else's point of view or express it differently in order to make it easier to attack. Um, so a common example, uh, is in medical marijuana where people say, someone might say, uh, I think we should make medical marijuana legal for cancer patients. And someone might attack this by saying, oh, so you think that everyone should just be able to smoke heroin whenever they want, essentially distorting their argument in order to make it easier to attack. And this is a very, very common thing that people use, either intentionally, because, again, they want to make their opponent's argument easier to attack, or because they misunderstand their opponent's argument, which can happen in more minor versions of the straw man. And there's the idea of the steel man, which is essentially a reverse straw man, where you attempt to restate your opponent's point, in a more cogent and stronger way. So something that's been proposed by uh, philosopher Daniel Dennett is the idea of how to compose a successful critical commentary of someone's point. And what he says is that first you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that the person you're talking to says, wow, thank you, I wish I thought of saying it that way. And then before attacking the argument, you should also list any points of agreement that you have and mention anything that you've learned from them before you begin criticizing them. And the idea is that this allows you to respond to their actual statement instead of to a strawman version of their statement and allows you to conduct a productive dialogue because the other person feels that you're actually trying to listen to what they have to say.
2: And that was another residue of the Steelman argument, is it shows that you're listening and when you're listening it creates rapport which is this you know two way channel with between the between the two parties that now makes communication more effective it shows it actually implies empathy because you're trying hard to understand someone else's point of view rather than simply arguing to debate them you're you're you're, you're arguing to better understand them and I think this is a, it comes in the book, Never Split the Difference, which is a book by Chris Voss. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, Never Split the Difference is, um, he's a, uh, it was a former New York City hostage negotiator. And he found that rather than trying to strong arm hostage situations, that by listening and by using rhetorical tools, they could get more people out more alive more often. So another really nice spin on the, on, the, on the straw man and steel man argument. So what are some of your other uh, particularly interesting fallacies?
1: Um, so we've discussed straw men and ad hominem attacks, which are the most common ones, and we've discussed the appeal to nature, which is, I think, the one that's most prevalent in discussions on biotechnology. And I think the most important thing isn't the specific fallacies, but more about being able to identify errors in reasoning. So it's more important to notice that something that the other person is saying is wrong or has a gap in logic, rather than being able to name a specific fallacy. Because once you're able to identify these gaps in logic, you're also able to figure out how to counter them or how to respond to them. So if you go back to the example of the appeal to nature, uh, where someone might say, this is uh, non-GMO food is natural, so it's better. GMO is unnatural, so it's bad and there are a lot of issues with this kind of reasoning <coughs> so for example, you can ask them ok, how do we define natural? I mean, is selective breeding natural? is farming on a large scale with fertilizers natural? Um, that's one way to point at one specific gap in reasoning there I think another gap in reasoning that you can point to is what about things that we think are unnatural but we still use all day? I mean, cards are unnatural but it's not something that you would want to avoid using and I think so. the most important thing is just being able to recognize the specific errors and reasoning.
2: No, I, I agree. It's sometimes hard to name them. But I think when you look, look at the list of logical fallacies, which you can find on, many of them are discussed on your website as well as in other places, if you understand what they are, it makes you better at picking them out. And I think it, especially when you're trying to have intelligent yeah. conversations um, around especially hot-button issues where and, and, and it's especially true when we're arguing things that are not really argued among scholars like we don't debate that climate change is happening we don't debate that vaccines are effective we don't debate <laughs> that genetic engineering has many more benefits than risks you know these are these are uh, arguments that happen in public space and When you have those particular, very polarized, evidence-based versus non-evidence-based discussions, you know, system two versus system one, right, arguments, then it really does help to to understand fallacies, because fallacies, are are logical fallacies really spawned from system one?
1: Uh, I think in some cases they are. So again, the appeal to nature, you know, we all have this intuitive preference for things that we perceive as natural. But a strawman, for example, it might be spra- It might occur as a result of system one because maybe you misunderstood your opponent's argument. On the other hand, a lot of cases people perfectly understand what their opponent is saying, and they still distort their argument just because they want to, because it will make it easier to attack
2: them. Yeah, and so we're, this is when we're um, really arguing with someone who is uh, maybe coming from an argument from the system one side where it maybe is much more emotional. But let's say we're just having a discussion with somebody who is starting to appeal to system two and you have system two engaging. You're talking with somebody and it's working just fine. You're convincing them of your point potentially. But what is the backfire effect? Explain that to us and how that can be an impediment to good communication.
1: So the backfire effect is the idea that sometimes when you present people, or attempt to present people with information uh, that convinces them of one viewpoint, it ends up backfiring, backfiring and convincing them of the opposite. So for example, um, if you attempt to explain to them why the Earth isn't flat, and you present a lot of compelling evidence, they might end up remembering, well, he said that the Earth was flat. Or they might end up saying... Uh, being even more convinced that the Earth is flat in spite of all the evidence that you showed them, or really because of all the evidence that you showed them, even though the evidence you showed them was completely contradictory to the point that they believed it.
2: Yeah, there's actually an interesting... Uh comment back in uh, episode 145 of the podcast, I spoke with Dr. David Just from Cornell University and he talks about the idea of how there are, there's almost like a reactivity that happens when somebody gives us instruction or gives us limits or challenges us with scarcity that our response is to go exactly the other way. <laughs> and it seems it seems to be very much what happens with the backfire effect that you can say, uh, you know, this is uh, a a safe product because we understand, uh, you know, A, B, C, and D. But yet people will automatically conjure suspicion in your words and take it the other direction.
1: Yeah. So basically, in a lot of cases, for example, people already have a decision. People have already made a decision what they think about that product. They already made up their mind for whatever reason, uh, usually because of system one, sometimes because of system two. And then when you try to give them evidence which shows that they are wrong, so some people might accept this evidence. They'll say, okay, you've raised a lot of very valid points. You've shown me studies, and I accept what you've said, and I've changed my mind, which is the ideal outcome, but not usually the most common one. And in other cases, people have already made up their minds. So when you show them the evidence, they're not saying, okay, I should look at this evidence and maybe admit I was wrong. They're saying, okay, this evidence contradicts what I believe in, so it's wrong, and now I have to figure out why this evidence is wrong and why I can dismiss it. And as they're doing that, they're coming up with more reasons in their mind why their initial stance is the right one. And this reinforces that initial stance, essentially, which is what causes the backfire effect. In a lot of cases. But are,
2: are there different kinds of backfire effects? So if you think about uh, overkill versus familiarity, what are those differences?
1: Yeah, so again, there's, first of all, the general backfire effect as a term for cases where you attempt to change someone's opinion, and you end up reinforcing the original one. And two very crucial ones are the familiarity backfire effect and the overkill backfire effect. So the overkill backfire effect is a phenomenon where the more evidence that you provide in support of a certain point, the less likely people are to accept that point. So for example, if you're arguing in favor of something and you give three compelling pieces of evidence, that might be more convincing than providing 10 pieces of evidence in support of that point. And essentially what happens is that people prefer to accept arguments that are easier for them to process from a cognitive perspective. And this, again, ties into the system one, system two. You know, It's much easier to say, all right, this makes sense, let's accept it. Then sit there and try to think through all the difficult and complex data, and then make up your mind. And what happens is, especially in the context of scientific discussion, is that scientists are used to the opposite. More evidence is better. So they try to pile on more arguments and more statistics and more examples and more explanations. And the more they try to provide this, the more people end up going with the opposite example. Especially since a lot of times uh, these myths or misconceptions have a very simple and intuitive explanation, which is much more compelling than a complex scientific reputation or complex scientific... This is, I think, one of the most important cognitive biases to be aware of. As a researcher, because if you go back to the idea of how you communicate with the general public and people who don't necessarily have a scientific background, again, you have to overcome this intuitive uh, desire to pile on the data and pile on the arguments, pile on the statistics, and instead figure out the most simple way you can deliver a compelling argument given your intended audience. Since essentially, you know, you would talk, you would present different evidence, in even between you know uh, the journal article and scientific presentation uh, since people are less able to process things during presentation and at the same time would also want to talk differently to a colleague who has the same technical background as you do than you would to a graduate student or an undergraduate student and then to people who don't have any technical background at all
2: and that's really why i was so excited to have you on the podcast today because what we do here is we i provide a lot of content i provide a lot of great examples to people about you know what, what are the new breakthroughs in medicine or agriculture or whatever using biotech but we also have to learn presentation how do we talk about this in ways that make us effective and so this is a really important to everything we've talked about today is so important in that presentation mode. So what are the other most important philosophical principles that we can use as scientists to guide proper and productive discourse?
1: So I think, again, accounting for logical fallacies, as we've already said, I think there is the steelman argument and there is the concept of how we can discuss other people's viewpoint in a productive way. So essentially by trying to deconstruct it, figure out what they're trying to say, restate it in the best form possible, and then only then reply to it in a critical manner, uh, which, again, you can refer to it as a steel man. Some people refer to it in one variant as the principle of charity. And I think these are the crucial things to understand from a philosophical perspective. And then we have the psychological and cognitive perspective, which is, again, trying to explain things in a very simple way. And we have the familiarity backfire effect, which I'll just touch on briefly, which is the idea that when you... Repeat something, it reinforces it in people's mind. And again, makes it easier to process, which makes it more likely that they will believe it. So if you tell people, um, the earth isn't flat because ABC, a week later, they might not remember the the complex scientific explanations, but they'll remember that you said something about the earth being flat. And this is again, very crucial to account for when you discuss these misconceptions and myths, because we tend to try and repeat them as we explain why they're wrong, and this can actually have, again, the backfire effect and cause it to be reinforced in other people's minds. So I think this is also something we should account
2: for. Now, you're um, working in linguistics, but you seem to have a really strong grasp on basic science just the short discussions we've had so where does that come from i mean did you really study that originally and 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 look at linguistics as another way in which you could apply a different discipline to science or how tell me a little bit more about your journey and your kind of diverse talents here
1: (laughs) Uh, i wish i could say that linguistics was relevant for me but even though i have written about it from time to time and i do Mention it in some of my articles. I don't feel that it was very uh, relevant to what I'm writing about. Um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I just found topics that interested me and open Google Scholar, tried to find all the relevant articles about the topic and just uh, read through them. And, you know, especially when you find good review articles that discuss these topics, such as uh, you have Kahneman's uh, Nobel acceptance speech, which really Ties in all the theory and all the research that you did on the topic. But for the most part, this is how I learn about it, by just reading things online and, again, finding good sources is crucial and forming my own knowledge and opinions based on that.
2: So, Edomar Schatz, if there's anybody who would like to learn more about what you do or would like to find the Effectiviology website or other resources, where would they look?
1: Um, just... Type of into Google, or go direct to the site. I have a newsletter where every week I sign, I send out an article on one of these topics, on things like the backfire effect or Strawman articles. And if you think that this is interesting, I encourage you to sign up and see whether you like it or not.
2: Yeah, I'll sign up for sure. I'm I'm a visitor to the website, but not a subscriber. But I certainly will be. So thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It was really productive, and I I hope that the listenership found this valuable and that it helps us make our arguments better, that we're not just standing on facts and evidence and data, but we're also considering the conduits by which those things flow. So thank you very much for joining me today, Edamar. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. I hope you appreciate the opportunity to listen to an expert in these other areas that will make our arguments better. I mean, we can know a lot about the science. We can know a lot about the facts and the evidence and the data, like I said before. But but if we're not communicating these things effectively, then what good is it? Think about this when you engage. Remember that you too have biases, that you can make mistakes in your logic. And if you train to understand what those are and what those aren't, then uh, you may be more persuasive in the way that you talk about science. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C O L A B R A.app.